This teaching is from City Church Coventry. You can find us online at www.citychurchcoventry.org. Good morning, everyone. It has been a good morning, hasn't it? Thank you so much, Ben. It's been, yeah, wonderful. Um, so we are rapidly hurtling towards the end of, uh, of our summer series, I think. This is... Uh, I think Matthew is still preaching about Simply Jesus once more. Is that right? Do you know? I don't think I'm the last one. Um, and you may be aware that the, those of us who have been speaking over the summer, some, uh, some slightly different faces than what we, we usually see at the front. Um, we have been meeting together towards the end of uh, last year and uh, towards the start of this year. And we had been, as a group, just uh, honing our preaching skills. We had been um, practicing... Uh, uh, maybe preparing a 10-minute talk and standing up in front of each other and uh, sh- sharing what we had uh, felt to say and then giving each other some encouraging feedback. And I did that, I think, in December, just before Christmas. And what most people have done this uh, summer, they've taken their 10-minute word that they prepared and they've expanded it. They've taken the same topic. They've, they've said more about it. And I thought about doing that, and, uh, and then I decided not to. I, I was happy with what I shared before, but I... Uh, I was more happy with sharing something that I, I felt a bit more up-to-date, something that was more on my heart now in this moment, rather than something that had been on my heart that I had prepared before. And the topic that I'm going to be speaking about is, or the title, is simply being with Jesus. Simply being with Jesus. And this is something that is very much uh, personal to me. I am going to trip on that once today. So what, well, it depends if you want to laugh. Um, <laughs> There's, the chance is now less. Thank you. Um, it's something that is quite personal to me. Uh, when Paula shared last week, she was very wonderfully vulnerable with us. And, and she shared some of her struggles and the things that she had been going through over the, over the past couple of years, maybe. And I think today is, is my turn to do that as well. Um, there are things that I've been challenged about, I guess convicted about as well. And the idea of simply being with Jesus, I feel like, or I have felt like, uh, Jesus has been challenging me, that I've become very good at doing Christianity. I've been very good at doing Christian things and not necessarily been good at doing them because I love Jesus. Uh, Not necessarily having him as my central focus, not necessarily uh, focusing on the relationship, but maybe I've been too caught up with routine, doing things because that's just what I do. That's, That's what I do every week, rather than saying, I'm doing this because, Jesus, I love you. So that's a you know, that's something that I've been challenged about. And I'm still very much at the start of that journey. I'm not standing here saying this is something that God has taken me through and now I've got it all together and I'm all right and I'm going to tell you guys to do it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I'm right at the start of, uh, or towards the start of this, uh, I guess, journey. And I'm just looking forward to, to sharing that, seeing if there's anyone else who wants to join me on that journey. Um, And I feel very much like when Paul wrote to the Philippians, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Uh, I am still in the pressing on. I haven't yet grabbed it. I haven't yet obtained it. I'm still pressing on. And uh, of course, I I shared this with Ben, what I was going to speak about, which is why we've already had so much encouragement on this very topic this morning about being in the presence of God, about loving Jesus, about waiting on him about saying, it's all about you. It's not about what I'm doing. It's not about the words I sing. It's not about how I look, how polished we are with our rehearsal, however good the band may be. It's not about that. It's about him. 
So I was thinking, uh, just as I get started, I was thinking uh, when I was preparing, it would be great if I could summarize everything I'm going to say in maybe five or six bullet point sentences and say them at the start. Because I'm a teacher, my job is a math teacher, I know very well how the human brain works when it comes to attention spans. I know that the things I say in the next five minutes are going to be sitting a lot nicer than the things I say in the however many minutes that come after that. So I'm thinking, why not say the things that I really want you to remember now and then expand them rather than building up to it like a twist at the end of a movie. So the key themes are love and presence. Love and presence. So I'm just going to read these out because uh, I wrote them in a particular way. So the first thing I, I'm going to share is all the things that we do in service to God are not as important as our relationship with him. All the things we do in service to God are not as important as our relationship with him. Secondly, sometimes we need to give less focus to the doing and more focus to the being. More focus to simply enjoying him, being with him for no other purpose. Number three, everything that we do for Jesus, we should do simply because we love him. It should be our only motivation. There shouldn't be any second or third priority. Simply because we love him. Fourthly, we should strive to avoid sin and live holy lives and repent often. Not because we have to, to get into heaven, but because we love God and we want to please him. Number five of six, we have a unique opportunity in this temporary existence on earth in our life. To choose to love God despite difficult circumstances. It's an opportunity we will not have in heaven. In heaven, everything will be great. We will not be able to say, God, everything's rubbish, but I still love you. I still choose you. That's a time-limited opportunity that we are having right now. Point number six. Uh, I'm going to encourage us to enjoy waiting upon God and valuing simply being in his presence. And that's both as individuals and when we come together. And I think you agree, it's been wonderful this morning. Like Ben, you are such a talented worship leader when it comes to being sensitive to what the Spirit is doing. It's really good for, uh, yeah, really good. It's, it's a healthy thing to do. So not always rush into the next song, but just to say, actually, what's God saying? What's he doing in this moment? So there you go. If that's all you remember, great. That's the sermon. Should we go home? No. I'm not wearing a watch, by the way. Um, I'll expand it a bit more, but those are the main points. Uh, and the main passage I'm going to be looking at is in Luke 10. So if you're the, the I want to have the Bible open in front of me kind of person, you can turn to Luke 10. There's a few other places that I will reference, but that's where I'm going to set up camp, as they say, for the, for the first part. And uh, I was really encouraged when uh, Chris Hamer Hodges uh, preached a few weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. And something he said that really stuck with me uh, he shared about Mary Magdalene uh, running to the, the tomb of Jesus and noticing that the, the stone was rolled away and the grave clothes were folded. And she realized that Jesus was alive. And she went and she told the disciples. And John and Peter ran to the tomb as well. But the difference was John and Peter stopped short of encountering Jesus himself because they were satisfied with the sign that he was alive. They were satisfied with the sign to the extent that they missed the encounter. That really stuck with me, and I just thought, I want to say more about that. I want, I want to, to spark something. Um, so this feels to me like a part two to what, uh, what Chris Amer Hodges was sharing a few weeks ago. 
But it, ha- it was something that I had already been pondering, something that was already stirring in me on my heart. Um, yeah, focusing on the relationship, not stopping and being satisfied with the side effect of the fact that he's alive and here. Um, when I say side effect, it's not a very nice phrase, is it? We usually think of bad side effects, but you know, the byproduct, the icing on the cake. Um, and I think some of those, I'm going to use the word side effect, some of those side effects, they, they can look like gifts of the Spirit, things that we, we do through the Spirit, having wisdom and knowledge and, and uh, head understanding, good theology. Um, that's a side effect of the fact that Jesus is alive and present. Um, when we experience provision from him or healing or miracles, these are all wonderful things, but they're not the main thing. They're not the number one thing. They're brilliant. They're praiseworthy. But they're not the cake. They're the icing on the cake. Being with Jesus in a two-way reciprocal, loving relationship, spending time in his presence and seeking his face rather than his hand, that's the cake. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love cake. So today I'm going to be talking about the cake. Let's read some verses in Luke 10, shall we? Um, I'll be starting in verse 38 with the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus visits their house. Um, But there's a few other places earlier in the chapter that I'll reference later, so you can just keep it open. Let's read Luke 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better. And it will not be taken away from her. This was the obvious passage that came to me when I was thinking about simply being with Jesus. And I'll just note now a couple of uh, points about the context. If anyone's wondering, this is not the same Mary who is the mother of Jesus. It's also not Mary Magdalene, the Mary that's referenced here. There's a lot of Marys apparently at that time in in Israel. Interesting. Um, And I think it's fair to assume that Mary and Martha, both of these people that are referenced It's fair to assume they're both followers of Jesus already. They're both already choosing him and loving him and serving him. They uh, they also appear in the Bible in John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. I didn't realize until recently that there's actually some uncertainty whether they're the same people or not. Even though they have the same names, apparently there's some geographic discrepancy as to where Jesus would have been at that time that they might not be the same people. I don't really care, to be honest. It's uh, it's not too important. Um, I think most people agree that they're probably the same people and either Luke or John made a mistake with the timing or something. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, But in that story, we see both of those people uh, approach Jesus and say, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. They had complete faith in him. They both loved him. But in this story, we see them choose to show that love in very different ways. Martha chose to serve God with the things that she was doing. She was very busy. She wasn't with him. She was probably off in another room preparing food, preparing the house. Um, We're not told what the things are that she was doing. We're just told she was distracted by making preparations. Whereas Mary chose to simply sit at the feet of Jesus and enjoy being with him, listening to what he said. 
Now, Martha had very good intentions. She's not a bad person. She didn't make poor choices. She didn't do bad things. The things that she was doing, she was doing them for Jesus. But she was maybe not doing them for the right reason. And it's interesting that Jesus did not rebuke her for the things that she did. He didn't say, why are you cooking or cleaning? Or why are you doing these things for me? They were good things. But Mary's choice was a better choice. And it's quite often that we can find ourselves busy and distracted by very good things. It doesn't have to be bad things that we need to maybe put on pause sometimes. Sometimes we can be doing very good things, but there's a better choice. In fact, Jesus said that there is only one option, or there's one uh, thing that is needed, he said. One thing that's worth worrying about. Loving Jesus, being with him, enjoying him, being in relationship with him. If we think about all of the things in our personal life that we worry about, that we stress about, that we busy ourselves with, it can be finance, it can be health, it can be relationships, uh, it could be jobs, it could be exam grades. If we think about all the things that we busy ourselves with as a, as a church, as most churches do, looking professional, looking polished, looking um, good on our social media so people who find us online want to come here, um, practicing the song so they sound good, these are all good things. They're not bad things. They're not bad things to do. Jesus is not rebuking us for doing those things. He's not rebuking us for worrying about our finance or our health. or you know, He cares about all those things. But none of that matters compared to our relationship with Jesus. They are so far second down the list. If we get the relationship with him right, everything else will fall into place. Everything else will seem so simple and so easy. We seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be given unto us later. And ultimately, in eternity, in heaven, all we're going to have is that relationship. There's not going to be any currency. There's not going to be any doctors. There's no reason to worry in heaven. So why don't we start now, seeing things with that heavenly mindset? There's no reason to wait. Why don't we start now, focusing on our relationship with God? I'm going to say this lots of times, but when there's things that I say that sound like I'm being convicting, I'm preaching to myself. This is my journey here, just sharing it with you. And it's also worth saying that Jesus did not say anything to Martha at all until she approached him to criticize her sister. Until she approached him and said, are you not going to tell her off for what she's doing? Are you not going to tell her to help me? It was only then that, uh, that Jesus spoke to her. He didn't approach her, which means that the message is not to do nothing. The message is not, things are bad, doing things is bad, sit back and do nothing. <laughs> Thankfully. The message is not, scrap all of the, the professional social media and practicing in the band and you know, get rid of all of your you know, belongings. That might be what Jesus is saying to you, but that's not what I'm saying to you. The message is not that. It's not that doing things to God is bad in of itself. And the message is not that God does not care. It's only that there's something greater and something that will last. Something that will not be taken away from us. Something that can never be removed. And that's being in relationship with Jesus. And I think a great illustration of this is when we look at the person of Jesus himself. He came as a human being. God, fully God, appeared on earth as a man to do some amazing things. He came to do but he also just came to be. He also came to earth 
just to be with his people. He came to do wonderful things. We praise him for the things he did. It's because of the things he did, in particular sacrificing his life on the cross to pay the debt for all sin, it's because of that that we can choose to be in relationship with him. But imagine if Jesus came to earth, fully God and fully man, and just hung out with his people for a few years and then left. That would still be worthy of praise. That would still be amazing. That's still the best bit. It's just an icingless cake. It's still wonderful. It is mind-bogglingly incredible that Jesus came to be with his people at all. Even putting aside, it sounds crazy to say, but even putting aside the cross, putting aside the things he did. Uh, So earlier in Luke chapter 10, if we look back at verse 17, Jesus has sent out a group of 72. He's given them some instructions as to what to do. He's given them some, some training maybe. And they've gone out, they've done some great things in his name. They've healed some people, they've cast out demons, they've preached his, uh, his gospel message, and then they've come back to him. And uh, in verse 17, in Luke 10, it says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Even the amazing things that we can do in the name of Jesus, even if we're doing it for him and through his power, the fantastic things, the wonderful things, the things we rightly should aim for and long for, they're never going to be the number one priority. They're never going to be as good as the fact that our names are written in heaven. The fact that one day, when all this has passed, we just get to be with him. If we don't enjoy being with Jesus, we're not going to have a great time in heaven. (laughs) We're going to be miserable if we don't enjoy being with Jesus. Because that's all there is. That's the whole thing. There's no bit to look look forward to after that. That's just it. So again, why don't we do that now? Why don't we learn to enjoy just spending time with Jesus? Practice for when we get to heaven. And of course the focus, the emphasis is on the relationship. It's on the being, it's not on the doing. And when I say it's not on the doing, it's not on the things that we do. And our focus, the reason we praise, is also not on the things that God does. You know, I say we seek his face, not his hand. That means that not only should we not worry about the things that we do. Well, when I say we shouldn't worry, I mean we shouldn't worry in comparison to our relationship with, with Jesus himself, but also don't worry too much about the things that he does. It means when we pray, we can first and foremost just enjoy being with him. We, we don't have to always pray because we need something. We don't have to always pray because we're asking for something. Even if we spend an hour a day praying just being with him and we don't ask for anything, that's still a very worthwhile hour spent. So I'm going to read one more passage from Luke chapter 10, and this is in between the two that we've read so far. And this is in verse 25. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And I think love is a really key underpinning theme here. We talk often about love as Christians, but I think more often than not, we talk about God's love for us and our love for each other. Both amazing things, not knocking those things. But there's a third thing, which is our love for God. How much do we love Jesus? Is it our number one love? Do we love him with all of our heart? Not some of our heart, not most of our heart. All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our mind. That's the number one instruction. This is the way that Jesus chooses to summarize the law. The whole understanding that the Pharisees had of how to serve God, Jesus summarized it in one sentence. He said, yep, you're correct. Love, love God with all of, your, all of your being and love each other. And uh, it reminded me as well of in uh, the book of Revelation, in the first letter that is written to the churches. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it out. You can if you want. Um, but the very first letter written from Jesus to the churches is written to the church in Ephesus. This is Revelation 2 verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus had no rebuke for this church for the things that they were doing. The things that they were doing, he said, you've got it all right. You've got it all sorted. You're testing the spirits. You're valuing truth. Um, you're doing lots of things in my name. You're working hard. You're persevering. However, the only thing you've missed is the main thing. One teeny, tiny little problem. You've made a cake and it's only icing. When I was a kid, I would have loved that, but um, not so much now. Not so good for your teeth. He says you've forsaken the love you had at first. Some translations say you've forsaken your first love. Jesus is our first love. He's the very reason that we're doing all this. If we don't love Jesus, what's the point? What's the point of doing all these things we do as Christians? All of these instructions, all the things that we strive for, it really has no meaning if we don't have love for Jesus. And again, there's no rebuke, really, or correction here other than that motivation. It's not the things themselves. It's the motivation behind those things. So I think the challenge for us is with every action and every choice we make, every, um, every act of service we do, every word we say, every thought we have, we need to ask ourselves, well, firstly, who are we doing those things for? Are we doing it out of selfish ambition? Are we doing it for Jesus? That's the first question. That's the easy question. Even if we're doing those things for Jesus, as the church in Ephesus were, they were doing things, great things, in his name. The deeper question, the second question, is why are we doing them for Jesus? Are we doing them because we love him? That has to be the number one reason. It has to be. That's the challenge that I'm at at the moment. 
And I was trying to think of an analogy for this, and I think the best one, if we imagine uh, a human relationship, a husband and a wife, and suppose that the husband one day, he sees some flowers in the shop, and he buys some flowers, and he goes home, and he gives them to his wife. And the wife says, thank you so much. What are these for? Why have you bought me flowers? Let me give you some scenarios of what the husband can say in response. And you can tell me if you think these are the right answers. So why have you bought me flowers? The husband says, firstly, well, I thought I should, because that's what husbands do. All of a sudden, the romantic side of this has taken a bit of a downturn. If the husband just says, well, that's what husbands do, so I thought I should do the same. That doesn't quite have the same punch behind it anymore, does it? Imagine, secondly, the husband responds, well, I want to stay in your good books. I don't like it when you're mad at me, so I've got you some flowers. Either because he's done something wrong already, or maybe he's anticipating doing something wrong soon. He wants to have some credit in the bank, I don't know. But I don't think that's the right answer for the husband to say that. Option number three, this is still not the correct one, by the way. If the husband says, well, don't you remember, my, my dear wife, you asked me a while ago to buy you flowers. I, I just assumed it was to brighten up the house. You asked me to, so I did. Well, that's great if he did, but, but that's not really the, the number one reason. It shouldn't be, anyway. Even if the wife has asked him to go and buy flowers, when he comes back and gives them, it, it doesn't quite have the same ring to it when he says, here you are, you asked me to, so I did. Or if he says, well, I thought you needed it. You know, I thought it was to brighten up the house. I thought it was for some purpose. Option number four. If the husband says, well... Today's Wednesday, and I always buy you flowers on Wednesday. I says, well, Wednesday's a flower day. I buy you flowers. Even if that's true. I mean, good for him. But that shouldn't really be the, the reason why he's buying them, is it? That shouldn't be the reason why he's giving the flowers, just because that's the day of the week. So you can tell me, what's the correct answer? What should the husband have said? That's very nice, but I'm preaching at the moment. Oh, that was your answer. Yeah, because I love you. Because I love you. Yes, that was a pre-prepared joke. Um, yeah, the husband should say, I'm giving you these flowers because I love you. Some of those other reasons aren't inherently bad. You know, but buying flowers every Wednesday, lovely. Doing it because your wife asked, lovely. But the number one reason is because he loves her. What does the wife really want? Does she want the flowers? Maybe. But really, she wants the love, she wants the affection, she wants the heart of her husband. And when we serve God in any way, whether it's with our, our financial giving, whether it's with our obedience to his instruction, it could be service at church, serving on a rota, being a part of a team here, it could be coming on a Sunday and singing worship songs, singing praise to God. If Jesus asked us today, why are you doing these things for me? Could we genuinely answer, it's because I love you, God? Imagine if God came to me, I'm going to use me as an example, and imagine he said, Chris, why do you serve on the church rotor for doing the words, for the worship, for standing over there at the computer and pressing the buttons? Why do you do that? Imagine if I said to him, well, I'm a Christian. That's what Christians do. We sign up for church rotors. <laughs> I don't think God would be delighted with that. If God said to me, Chris, why do you spend time every day reading some of the Bible and praying? 
Imagine I said to him, well, I've done some bad things recently. Or maybe I'm anticipating I'm going to do some sinful things soon. And I just, I don't need to be mad at me, God. So I thought I'd read the Bible a bit. I don't think that's really what he wants. Chris, why do you tithe? Why do you give money to the poor? Well, you said we should. Again, that's good. It's good to be obedient to God's instruction. But the number one reason is because I love God. I love him. I want to bring him joy, bring him pleasure. Or if he asked me, Chris, why do you sing worship songs when you come to church? And I just say, well, that's what I always do on Sundays. Sundays is go to church day. Why are we here? Can we genuinely say because we love Jesus? Or is it just because of what our calendar says? It cuts deep, but preaching to myself. Thank you. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13 is the famous passage about love. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I've written down here, the Christian life is a continual revelation of the love that God has for us, which inspires a continual growth in the love that we have for him in worshipful response, and which empowers a continual overflow of love unto the world around us. It is all about love, ultimately. It is all about love. If we take that out of the equation, that's the key ingredient that's gone. Uh, I know I've been speaking for a while. What I want to do is I want to share two implications of this very quickly. I'm not going to speak long about them, but two uh, therefores. So we know this. We, we should do everything in love for God. We should enjoy being with him rather than doing. Uh, in mathematics, we call them corollaries. It's one of those words that you have to practice saying a few times, a corollary. Uh, a corollary, it means we've proven this particular theorem. Therefore, what else do we know? What can we deduce from that? So I just have two quick ones. Uh, the first one is to do with sin and righteousness and repentance. I think it's very important to remember that when Jesus came, he did not, uh, well, he specifically said, I have not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. Sin is still a very important consideration, even for the Christian who lives under grace. Even for the Christian who lives under the grace of God and who knows, however much I sin, I'm still going to heaven. The fact that I know that, it should not change the fact that I should strive for a holy life simply because I love God. In fact, you may have heard it said that grace has a higher standard than the law. Living under grace requires more of us than in the old covenant before Jesus came. Chris, how can that be, I hear you say? How, how, can, how can grace have a higher standard than the law? Well, I'll tell you, just calm down. Um, what the law says, the law says, if I do X, Y, Z and don't do X, Y, Z, then I'll be fine. It will get me over the finish line. I'll be okay with you. The mentality is, what's the bare minimum that I can get away with in order for you not to stop loving me, in order for you not to leave me? It just says, if I do this and don't do this, 
What can I do to be okay? But when you're in a loving relationship with someone, when we live under grace now with Jesus, there's an even higher standard because we're in a relationship with him. When you're in any kind of relationship with someone, I can take a friendship. Let's say I'm friends with Balade. Let's say I go to him and I say, Balade, what's the minimum that I need to do for you to stay my friend? Can you give me an exhaustive list of things that I need to do and not do? And if I do and not do those things, then we'll still be friends. If I'm a genuine friend in a relationship with someone, then I still have to do all those things. All the things that are listed in the law, they're essentially a list of things, as Jesus has summarized, they're a list of things that show how much we love God. If we love him, we'll do these things. We won't do these things. This is what brings him pleasure. This is what brings him joy. So if I'm in a a friendship or relationship with someone, it's not good enough to say, well, we're friends. We have grace over each other. So whatever I do, I'm going to be fine. You know, I'm I'm sure there are not many things that I could do that would make Balade stop being friends with me completely. But with Jesus, there's literally nothing. There's literally nothing we can do that will make him stop loving us. But the fact that we know that, it does not mean we don't have to do any of the things he said we should do. It does not mean we can enjoy sinning. We should still strive to live a holy life, and we should still repent when we get things wrong. Repentance is one of those words we maybe don't talk about enough in church. Maybe for fear of misrepresenting God, or misunderstanding what we're saying. But repentance is super important, because it just says, God, you're my friend. I've done something that did not make you happy, and I'm sorry. It's as simple as that. So I think the fact that we live under grace, we still have to do all the things that we should have done before. But now on top of that, I said it has a higher standard, we do it, and we have to love him as well. We don't just have to do it, and then we're okay. It's not about what's the bare minimum. It's about how much can I go over and above to please the God who I love and who I serve. The second uh, corollary I want to share, I'm skipping over a few things. I'm, uh, yeah. I think I've summarized that, that point well enough. The second implication of living in love with Jesus is this thing I've said about the unique opportunity we have now to love him when the world says maybe we shouldn't. When the situations are hard, when we're going through pain and suffering and hardship, anything that causes us to feel less than good, and there will be things, lots of things, because we still live in this uh, fallen world. The kingdom is now, but it's not yet, so there will be things, you know, it might be financial hardship, might be illness, all those things. We can stand in the midst of that and still love God, which is an opportunity we're not going to have when we pass into eternity. It's, it's a, what I've called a poverty opportunity, or a poverty. <laughs> poverty, I think. When we have poverty, any lack... Any lack whatsoever. It could be financial, health, anything that we need. If we turn around in the middle of that and say, I still love you, God. I still choose you. That brings him so much joy. That brings him so much pleasure. And that's an opportunity, a poverty we're not going to have in heaven. It's one of the very few things that we should praise God about now compared to in heaven. Most things when we talk about kingdom now and not yet, we talk about... Eternity, we're looking at how bad things are here and how good things are there. I think this is the one thing that we should be grateful for now compared to heaven. One thing that's going to be less good in heaven. Can you believe that? We're going to be robbed of the chance 
to praise God in the midst of trouble. So let's make the most of it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's make the most of the poverty. And of course, the context is we know that we lack nothing, really. I'm talking about poverty. We know that um, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. If I have Jesus, I have everything. The mentality is uh, there's nothing that I lack. Psalm 73, it says, um, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. We have everything we need if we have Jesus. So let's embrace the poverty. And finally, I am finishing now. I'm uh, just going to say something about the presence of God, the idea of the presence, and in particular the context of now. Because I think that when we talk about the presence of God, it's a really important outworking of this things we've been saying about being with him rather than focusing on the doing. And when we talk about loving God, the presence of God is kind of what it looks like now. Before Jesus came, there was still the presence of God on the earth. In the Old Testament, it describes the presence of God as a, as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. It describes the presence of God when the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters in creation. It describes the presence of God in the temple that the Israelites built. They had to host the presence of God. It was the number one instruction God gave them was to host him, host his presence. And then Jesus came as a man. And he facilitated the presence of God on earth in a new way. But now that he's gone and ascended, we're in this time and we still should value the presence of God. Nothing's changed in that respect. The Holy Spirit has been given unto us, who's always with us. But I think it's important that we look at the presence of God as more than this passive knowledge that God is always here. It's more than that. It's more than just saying, like we often you know, tell kids, well, God is everywhere. It's more than that. There are some times and places, I'm sure you'll agree, we'll have all experienced it sometimes, where it feels like God turns up the heat, where he feels more present in a strange way, in this peculiar, glorious way. He feels heavy almost. You know, in that time where the spirit was hovering over the water in, in the creation of the earth, it feels like that. It feels like he's ho- hovering over us. He, he's intensely being with us in a deliberate way. So I think the presence of God is more than this passive knowledge. And I think it's important to turn our attention to his presence when we meet together and as individuals. Something that I'm learning, something that I'm trying to put more emphasis on is recognizing when God is turning up the heat. Recognizing those moments when he is saying, I'm here not just to do something. We know that when when God... Uh, brings his presence in a way when we meet together, for example, often it is to do something. Often it's in those moments that people experience healing, people experience peace, people experience joy. Things happen when God turns up. But that's not the number one thing we should be grateful for. Even if he came and did nothing, that would be amazing. Just being with him, just the fact that his presence is here should be enough Uh, reason for worship and reverence and awe and imagine how much we would value the presence of God if it was still visible as it was in the Old Testament if it was this cloud of fire or a pillar that you could see imagine if it was still something that when you stepped into it you died that was it game over you touched the ark death 
I think we would value it maybe more than we do, maybe more than I do. Um, there's a great story that I love to share at every opportunity I get. About 10 years ago, I went on a trip to a conference in California um, at Bill Johnson's church in Reading, uh, the church called Bethel. And Bill Johnson is one of my heroes of the faith. He, he's written books about hosting the presence of God. Everything he says about the presence of God, the glory of God, I love it. And his church loves it. They love being with Jesus. And so I went uh, to a conference there with some people from my church at the time. And there was one evening where we were worshipping, where after the service, I think the service had finished, the chairs had been packed away, there was a CD playing, and there started to be some glittering in the air. Some, it looked like gold dust, is the best way I can describe it. It looked like someone had unleashed some glittery confetti, but it wasn't falling to the ground. And it wasn't coming from anywhere. There was a space above, there was a space below, space all around, but there was this gold, this shiny. And people just started worshipping God. They just started praising. I think that maybe even someone got up again and started leading in worship. And it was incredible. Because in that moment, God brought his presence in a visible way. Now, why did he do that? That served no purpose. I don't think anyone touched it and was healed. I don't think anyone experienced some great revelation when they saw it. It was just there so that we would have awe and wonder in him, in recognizing that he was there. And that in of itself was amazing. And I've never seen it since, but I praise God for it, for that experience. And I think it's something that, um, that we've done really well today when Ben was leading. I think when, uh, when we recognized that the presence of God was here and we just started worshiping, and we waited, we waited on God to see what he would do, to see what he would say. Even if he said nothing, even if no one came and shared, it would be amazing that he was just here. So I think I'm coming to the end now. Um, just checking my notes if there's any big things I've written in bold that I haven't said. Um, but I've asked Ben if we will sing one more song at the end. It feels like the only appropriate response is to, is to sing a worship song. Just to enjoy being with him. Uh, no, I've said all that. Um, so I'm going to finish by just reading a verse from Psalm 27, and then maybe I'll pray for us and we'll sing one final song. Psalm 27, verse 4, it says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Hallelujah. Jesus, we love you for who you are. We praise you this morning simply because you're here, simply because you're good, simply because we know you. Jesus, we say that everything that we do, every thought we have, every word we say, we do it because we love you. Help that to be more and more true in our lives, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you chose to come and be with us. You chose to come and live as a man and die on the cross so that we could be in relationship with you. Jesus, this morning, we repent of all sin that's in our lives. And we ask for strength to help us live our lives in a way that brings you the most pleasure. And Lord, if there are things that we need this morning, help us to seek your face first. Help us to just love on you and worship you. And stand in the midst of our difficult situation 
and embrace the opportunity. And Lord, would you bring your presence on us in a new way. As a church and as a city, would you bring your presence that we would be with you and love you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this teaching from City Church Coventry. You can find more great teaching and other resources on our website at www.citychurchcoventry.org.